to me, the selling point for an FQHC on an APM is we have a provider shortage now that will only get worse. We have concerns about provider productivity that continue to get worse. And so the getting paid on a per visit basis does not appear to be financially sustainable to me. And so converting to a capitated per member basis where it doesn't have to be dependent on a billable visit, it could be alternative care done by a nurse, a care coordinator, a health coach, whoever is not only probably better care for the patient and leads to higher quality, but also, in my opinion, more financially sustainable for FQHCs. This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. Welcome to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast the podcast that brings innovations and best practices in healthcare to your podcasting app. I'm Adrian, your host, and today I'm super excited to be with Kurt Degenfelder, who is the president of Kurt Degenfelder Consulting, Inc. We're going to talk today about alternative payment models. And so without further ado, Kurt, do you want to introduce yourself? Good morning, Adrian. Uh, This is Kurt Degenfelder. I am a consultant who works solely with FQHCs. I've been working with FQHC since January of 1996, first in New York City and now here in Los Angeles. I have worked with health centers in every single state of the union and do also a lot of work with various state primary care associations, as well as the National Association of Community Health Centers. Great. Well, I know alternative payment models are on everybody's mind right now in the community health center world. Could you start us off by just giving kind of an introduction to what the difference is between an alternative payment model and a traditional fee-for-service model? Sure. And I'd, I'd like to define that even a little further and separate out an FQHC-specific term for APM, which is alternative payment methodology, which is a different way for health centers to be paid than on the per-visit basis, where they can opt to be paid on a per-member-per-month basis. And then the other side of that equation would be value-based care or pay-per-performance, where the provider is not just paid for volume, but is paid for quality, patient engagement, potentially even some shared savings or risk bearing for total cost of care. Got it. Okay. So given what you know about finance, where do you think FQs should be investing to ensure that they have the necessary infrastructure and resources to successfully implement a capitated model or alternative payment methodology? Sure. I would say the first thing is is to get the data and get control over your data. So that's where the investment would be there are a whole set of new measures, right? So traditionally, health centers have looked at provider productivity in terms of visits per provider FTE or looked at their bottom line or revenue numbers. In either in APM or in value-based care, there are different measures. So in an APM, you need to know how many members have been assigned to you versus how many of those members you've actually seen as patients of your health center how often they come in. So what is your visits per member per year? 
So really a focus on assigned members as opposed to patients. On the value-based care side, there is a different quality measurement system called HEDIS. So being knowledgeable on how HEDIS is calculated, because while some of the measures are similar to the UDS quality measures, they are calculated in a different way with a different population. So it's really important to both understand those numbers as well as understand the data that goes into them and evaluate whether or not that data is any good and truly reflects the health center's actual performance. Could you give an example for folks of like what a HEDIS measure might look like? Sure. So the one I always like to use is childhood immunizations. So a newborn, before they reach two and a half years of age, are supposed to get, I believe, seven different shots. So measles, mumps, and rubella, things like that. So that is a UDS quality measure, and health centers report on that in the UDS by going into their electronic health record and looking for those immunizations. On the HEDIS side, that data is dependent on claims data that you send to a payor. It might be a managed care plan. It might be the state. Oftentimes, these immunizations are covered by a vaccine for children's program, so we don't really feel a strong need to bill them or report them to the managed care plan. So I've literally seen instances where a health center reports 85% compliance on this measure on the UDS and 1% compliance on HEDIS. Got it. And I know that that's been a big topic that I've that has been coming up for me in the finance and billing side of health centers is making sure that folks are coding appropriately is going to be really critical, not only in term determining risk stratification of their patients, but also it sounds like in terms of HEDIS measures. I'm sure you know more about that than me. So did you want to speak about that at all? Uh, coding? Absolutely. So so CPT for coding, which has been our procedures, but also CPT2 coding, which allows some various, which, which can be used to trigger HEDIS, a whole bunch of HICSPIX codes, including some codes that actually measure social determinants of health. And then, of course, the ICD diagnosis codes, hopefully to a level of specificity that allows it to trigger to maybe eventually prove if we claim we have sicker patients. Can we use the data to show that we have sicker patients and that we deliver, as a consequence, more care to them? And so just for our listeners who might not be billing specialists, the way that I understand this is if I am seeing a patient that I, I, get, I know that I get the PPS rate anyways because I'm in a fee-for-service model at a community health center, is that I might not necessarily bill a level one, two, three, or four visit depending on the, the sickness of the patient and how many diagnoses I'm managing and whatnot, but it's going to be really important in the future to appropriately code those visits even though the PPS rate is the same because that is likely what payers are going to be looking at to determine the risk stratification of patients and therefore the potential capitation rate. Is that is that correct? Am I saying that right? Yes, that's that's spot on. So if you look at health center data, let's say for a new patient office visit, most, the vast majority, 80, 90% are coded at that level three that you mentioned, a 99213. So kind of the middle. 
right? It goes from 99211 to 99215. If you have sicker patients and are delivering more care and have multiple diagnoses, as you pointed out, those visits are probably a 99214 or a 99215. And by coding the 99213, you're not getting credit for it in any payor system. Got it. That's super helpful and something that I think is really actionable for FQHCs because there's probably in a lot of cases some training that needs to happen for providers and billing staff to make sure that, you know, that's one of the things we have to do as we get ready for these models or methodologies. Okay. So I do want to dig into this issue around attributed patients versus patients that we, at least in a fee-for-service model, consider our patients. And so can you talk a little bit about what the difference is between an attributed patient and a patient that we might have on the books and how important you think it's going to be to do outreach to newly attributed patients? Sure. So let, let's use the term member, use the term attributed member, and then we can continue to use the word patient right? So then we have three categories of individuals. Members who have been attributed to us and have been patients and we've seen them, so we'll we'll call them assigned and seen. Then we have patients who might belong to a managed care plan who we've seen but who have not been attributed to us. So we would call those seen but not assigned. Then the last category would be those members who have been attributed to us, but who have never been seen as patients or were not seen in the data period under review, those would be called the assigned but not seen. That assigned but not seen is where we have the problem. That can be up to or even above, but to say that that number would be 40% at a particular health center would not be surprising to me at all. And what that does then is 40% of your members, you have no control over their quality scores. You have no control over their total cost of care. And so that's going to potentially have an impact on your HEDA scores, on your total cost of care. Now, you asked about outreach. So what we all envision, right, is this list. So let's say we have 20,000 assigned members and 40% of those members we've never seen. So that's 8,000 people. So what we really have to do is pick up the phone and call all 8,000 people, right? So first of all, that's a lot of work. But secondly, a lot of the demographic information that we get from the plans is wrong. A lot of people don't answer their phone anymore if they don't recognize the number. So you know, merely getting in touch with the member is difficult. Then some may not want to come in for care. There's certainly a group of people who don't utilize healthcare over the course of the year or or are not interested in engaging with a primary care provider or may already have someone else who they consider their primary care provider. Then let's say we can schedule, get a visit scheduled with them. What I've heard for health centers who have done this effort is that the no-show rate for those scheduled visits is around 50%. So ultimately, if you reached out to 8,000 people, the experience is typically between 5 and 10% that you would actually get between 400 and 800 of them to actually come in. So outreach is great because we do want to try to engage them, but it is a difficult process and not one that, that yields the greatest returns. Yeah. And, you know, Kurt, this is actually something I think about a lot is because before I worked for Coleman Associates, my job was to build a care coordination program in an FQHC that was part of a testing or pilot 
phase of an APM with capitation and downside risk and everything in Chicago. And so I started my first day. I'll never forget this. And my manager said, okay, you have three days to finish reaching out and completing health risk assessments for these 10,000 patients. And to be clear, you know, they've had it for like months. I was rearing to go. It was a new job. I was like, okay, we're going to get this done. And what I didn't realize is that was completely and totally impossible. And so, you know, we spent the next year and a half really painstakingly reaching out to those folks. I can, I can think of one person right now whose name I could still tell you, but of course I won't for HIPAA reasons, who I called personally 56 times trying to get through and never got an answer from. And I think what's great about where we are right now in the health center world is we have so many new technologies that we didn't have before. And so like, you know, I see so many folks doing robust confirmations and jockeying calls with two-way texting systems. And I think that there's ways to get to these newly attributed patients fast because that's, you know, the, the day that you get that list is going to be the best day for reaching out to them because that's probably when the contact information is the most updated. But it is a very big challenge for health centers. And I just want to underscore what you're saying about that. So then I also wanted to respond to something that you were saying there in terms of as we're thinking about these sort of three categories of folks is definitely I'm thinking about the folks who we get a list. They're not currently coming to see us, but they're they're assigned to us. We kind of we hopefully know what to do in terms of the patients that are already ours and are attributed to us and making sure that their HEDIS measures are high, that they're receiving the appropriate care, that we're keeping them engaged in care. But I also think, you know, Folks need to be thinking about those those folks who they are already seeing as patients but are not assigned to them is there is also that additional work that I have found health centers doing around trying to get those people switched over so that they're attributed appropriately so that they get credit for providing some of that care. And then also if there's folks that don't want to be seen there or have a different that have a different preferred care provider, but they're attributed to that organization is trying to help them to switch that over. Are you seeing that in your work also? Well, yes, but the the issue there is that requires in almost every instant consent from the member. And so you can do it while they're in the health center, but then, you know, that oftentimes involves literally like maybe filling out a form, but also calling the plan. So it becomes incredibly disruptive to patient flow. So absolutely, that's something we should endeavor to do, but we've got to figure out a way to do it efficiently. And number one, recognizing that we do need that consent. And number two, in a way that doesn't, you know, overburden employees or throw off patient flow. Definitely. And obviously doing it with the patient's consent. And then I I think most folks that have worked at a front desk are familiar with the patient who comes in and we have to change who their PCP is. And you basically hope that you have an additional phone at the front desk so that they can sit on the phone for an hour trying to get it changed because that I'm hopeful that that process will get easier. But I have worked in healthcare for a long time and I'm not banking on it anytime soon, I suppose. So in terms of downside risk with APMs. Could you describe what that means, but also how important you think it is in the in the near to medium term future? So downside risk is sometimes referred to as full capitation, but it could be partial capitation too, where essentially it's, and it's frequently done with a network 
as opposed to an individual provider, unless that provider was like a full hospital system or something. But I don't know that there are too many FQHCs. There may be a couple who take on direct full risk contracts. So basically there, the payor agrees to pay you for the total cost of care for a group of members And you are then in charge of paying claims and in managing that total cost of care. And if that total cost of care is more than they paid you, you have that risk and you lose money on that contract. If it is less than you save, then you get to keep the savings. There is a wrinkle on that, which is called shared savings which is upside only for the provider. And that's a much more common vehicle for FQHCs in value-based care. Got it. I don't want to ask you what the future holds (laughs) because obviously I'm assuming you're not psychic potentially, maybe you are, but where do you think that we're going to be in two to five years with APMs for health centers? So if we talk specifically about APMs, Here in California, we are undergoing a massive effort to implement an APM on January 1st, 2024. I have worked with health centers in other states. It takes a while, Adrian. So in five years, so right now the the, the kind of capitated APMs are in Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. I think it would not be unreasonable to expect that maybe we would have 10 more of those in five years. In two years, we might have one more of those because there's just a lot of work going through the state, going through the CMS, if you're working with managed care plans. So these types of projects have very long lead times. But to me, I know we talk about transforming care. I know we talk about a lot of things associated with APMs. To me, the selling point for an FQHC on an APM is we have a provider shortage now that will only get worse. We have concerns about provider productivity that continue to get worse. And so the getting paid on a per visit basis does not appear to be financially sustainable to me. And so converting to a capitated per member basis where it doesn't have to be dependent on a billable visit, it could be alternative care done by a nurse, a care coordinator, a health coach, whoever is not only probably better care for the patient and leads to higher quality, but also, in my opinion, more financially sustainable for FQHCs. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there any advice that you'd like to give to our listeners or anything you'd like to get on your soapbox about? That's not a great question to ask someone like me, Adrian. So I could spend a lot of time on my soapbox. When it comes to these topics, what I always like to tell folks is you're not behind. There is this impression that's given there that we've already moved from volume to value. We have not yet moved to volume from volume to value. Definitely not in the FQHC world, although there are some health centers who are doing a good job in value-based care. But we are paid right now mostly on the billable visit. So productivity and those sorts of things are still important. We've not done the transformation yet. I'm a little aware of what's going on in other provider spaces. It also appears to me that they are also not there, but transforming. So this transformation is very slow. As you know, healthcare is a huge industry and the change the way we get paid takes a long, long time. 
So my, my advice would be don't panic, get the data correct, right? And then if there is a either an APM in your state or a value-based program that some of your payers offer, investigate that and understand that and understand you know, how you would perform and what you need to do to do well in those programs. It's great advice. Is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I can ask you now? Yeah. So I, I guess the, the other thing, and, and maybe I could have put this in an advice is, you know, does it depend on the size of the health center? And it absolutely depends on the size of the health center. You know, out here in California, we have plenty of health centers with revenue over a million, a hundred million dollars a year, excuse me. And they have more resources to develop this. So if you are a smaller health center, my advice would be look to go, especially in value-based care, look to go the network route where there is some sort of management services organization. This could be through your PCA. This could be through your HCCN. But where there is an organization that has those resources that you're kind of pooling with other health centers who are in a similar situation as you, don't try to do all of it on your own because it's it, there's just too much work to do. And for a health center with a $10 million budget, the, you know, the, the dollars to hire the people and to allocate to those activities just are not there. That makes total sense. Anything else? I would say, you know, other than my, what I said earlier about getting the data and understanding the data. So, you know, if you said, what's my first step, right? Because people always like a plan. So if you are in a paper performance that has HEDIS, look at your control for people with diabetes and compare that to your UDS measure and figure out why those two numbers are different if they are. You know, we love a concrete first step here at Coleman Associates. So I appreciate that. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much to Kurt. I know this is such a hot topic in healthcare right now and everyone's trying to figure out, are they behind? Are they ahead? Are they going in the right direction? Are they on the boat at all? And so I just want to thank Kurt for sharing his expertise and point of view on things. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast so that you never miss an episode. If you or someone you know should be interviewed for an episode, shoot us an email at notify at colemanassociates.com or reach out to us on social media. To keep up with all the Chispa happenings, make sure that you're following us on LinkedIn. I'd like to give a big shout out to Jonathan and to Nikolai for all of their podcasting help, and we'll see you next time. Uh-huh.